There is a story that is a kind of New Year's story that I love. Tonight's talk will be about the power of intention. And in this story, it's a story of a, a wise king somewhere in Asia who was in his elder years and needing an heir, not having an heir, and decided to open up the doors to the whole population. Anybody that wanted to be the next king, he'd interview. And he had New Year's Day as the day that they were all invited to come to the castle and um, be part of an interview process. And in his good-heartedness, before the interviews started, he opened up the bathhouses so they could all take baths, and he had masseuses there to give them massages. And then he opened these wardrobes up because he wanted to make sure everybody had an equal shot at, you know, looking good. So he opened up these wardrobes and he, with all the accoutrements, the shoes and everything, they were like excited children trying on costumes, you know. Old people came young, rich, poor. It was a huge mob at the castle that day. And then, of course, after getting dressed, he had a whole banquet there for them, you know, just sumptuous piles of food. So that was really exciting. And then after that, the entertainment began. And his plan was to have entertainment going while people would, one by one, come upstairs and he'd interview them to see who really had the, the wisdom and the heart to guide the kingdom. So there was music and there was dance and uh, magic shows. And the king sat upstairs alone, and nobody came, and nobody came. And finally, one of his attendants came up late, late into the night, and the king was just completely bewildered. And much to his disappointment, the attendant said, I'm sorry, sir, but they've all gone. You know, they, they stuffed their pockets with soaps from the bathing houses and extra food and whatever, but they've gone. And so he, of course, was in, in a deep kind of disappointment. How did they forget? So this is a story of us all. Um, it's a story of how we get either enthralled or entranced or in some way derailed because of what's going on in our lives. We get seduced by this sensory world of what we think we want to get our pursuits get really narrowed, or we get derailed because we're so wrapped in a, a story about what's going to go wrong next in our life that we're defending against that and not really paying attention to the big question, which is, why did we come here? You know, what are we doing here? And in one way we can sense that we came to this earth, we are incarnated to claim our inheritance, which is really our Buddha nature, to discover the depth and beauty of who we are, to realize what's described as the awakened heart-mind. And our greatest treasure is this discovery of, of our natural wisdom and compassion, because in that we really discover that we belong to each other and we belong to this world. So we incarnate with the potential to realize this depth and this beauty. And then we get sidetracked because these priceless treasures of awakening are not as glittery and seductive as 
sensory comforts and accumulating goods and impressing other people and protecting our reputations and on and on. So we land up with not so much time in our daily life for, for practice, for spiritual practice. You know, in the East, spiritual realization is much more valued than in the West. You can go to any local village or city and, and ask, well, where's the, where's the realized saint around here? And, and whoever you ask will eagerly either take you to the person or point out the way. Try asking that question here in Bethesda. <laughs> go to Montgomery Mall and, you know, <laughs> you get some strange looks, right? Today I just finished a book I was reading. Uh, it's called Learning to Fall. Have any of you read that book? Learning to Fall. Philip Simmons? It's pretty new. Philip Simmons at 35 was a uh, writer and a college professor and he has also a father of two and he found out at 35 that he had Lou Gehrig's disease. And um, so of course his whole life got turned around, and this is nine years later, the book that came of what it was like for him to face dying and face living. Um, And he's alive a little bit against the odds, but he's definitely failing. And it was an incredibly inspiring book. He, He really has a way of looking at life not as a problem to be solved, but as a mystery to live and to cherish. And as we find out when we hit the edge, when we kind of are at the cliff's edge, when we can no longer control things, we can either back off and get tense and bitter, or we can get it that um, it's not like it's a problem we can fix. This aging, this disease that happens, this loss of people we love, we can't fix it. And it's very humbling and sometimes terrifying, but that's what he realized, that there was nothing he could do. So he could, the only option, if he had the courage, was this kind of a spiritual practice of dropping any idea of how he thought life should be and getting very, very present with the mystery and the harshness and the beauty of what was happening. So he was an example of a person who kind of prematurely, given what he thought would happen, had to get very intentional. All the normal ways of getting distracted and derailed paled because he had this imminent death right in front of him. Very powerful kind of model of what's possible when we pay deep attention. Because for him, remembering every day that he was going to die made it so that every day was filled with a quality of vibrance and beauty and loving the people he's with. And we know this about facing death. We know it intellectually and we get comfortably cushioned in our daily life. We get habitual and we forget.
the Buddha, in describing the path of freedom, described an eightfold path that many of you are familiar with, but it begins with this understanding. It's all impermanent. We suffer if we try to hold on to things. We have to have things our way. We suffer if we try to avoid how it is. Any of that managing keeps us small and separate and it covers over the mystery. If you're in a moment of trying to manage how things are, there's not that open wonder that just here it all is. And we get into that insane thing where we start acting certain like we actually know what's going on, which is to me one of the most bizarre things. So the Buddha said, first step, this understanding, it's impermanent, we can't hold on, and the only freedom comes from letting go of trying to control and letting go into a profound presence. Because in a moment of being present, we connect with love, we connect with the realization that we belong together, and we see how things are. The second of the steps that he described that comes right out of this understanding is we get real intentional about being present. If we understand what the gig is, if we get it, that our tendency is to get derailed, to latch on to things, to avoid, if we understand that suffering, then our natural intelligence has us be very intentional. We want to wake up. The Buddha described how our intention, whatever attention is, whatever we're really wanting, aiming at, trying to get or trying to avoid, creates our experience. Let's try something. Why don't you just close your eyes for a moment? I always like to do this a little more experientially. And in your mind, bring up the word trouble and see it like it's on a blackboard and feel it and hear it. You can say it loud inside your head. Trouble. And then erase the blackboard. Clear it off. Take a breath. And now, the word kindness. Kindness. Again, just hear it, see it, sense it, kindness. Now these are two thoughts that are plucked out of thin air. But notice how your body is affected. Sense the power of certain repeated thoughts to affect your system. You know, we live in a cocoon of thoughts that are very familiar. And if our intention is to crave something or want to avoid something, our thoughts are all going to be circling around that. It shapes our world. In the Buddhist scriptures, one set of them called the Dhammapada, we read this. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you. 
as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Our thoughts all come out of these basic intentions. What are our intentions? You know, it's so interesting to me how modern physics and all the mystical traditions are um, quite hand in hand, that if you look close into the subatomic world, it's described as a world of possibilities, of tendencies, you know, nothing concrete. And in this world of uncertainty and possibility, intent is the tool that precipitates a probability into a definite event. It's called the observer effect. Probably many of you heard of it. That whatever we're paying attention to, what we experience comes out of how we pay attention, how we look. So, if you're in the habit of anticipating and warding off trouble, if life's a problem to be solved, to be fixed, that's going to shape your world. That's the reality that you're going to experience. If you're judging who has something to offer you, or who might be a drain. If that's the way you're scanning, that's the world that's created. The intention is to protect yourself. You'll have a defended world. If instead your intention is, how can I be more kind? How can what's going on right now wake up my heart? If your intention is to be present in an unconditional way, with how this life is, with that courage. Whole different world. So tonight I'd like to kind of explore, go a little more deeply into the power of aspiration. Because in every spiritual tradition there is a kind of flow between this longing of the heart to wake up and this willingness to let go so it can happen. And we begin to deepen our aspiration by really seeing how we're trapped in our habitual wanting. I mean, what was today like? We look at that. D.H. Lawrence wrote this. He said, Men are not free doing just what they want. Men are only free doing what the deepest self likes. And there's getting down to the deepest self. It takes some diving. So at the king's castle, the folks there were waylaid. They, weren't, they were doing what they wanted. They were trying on clothes and feasting and watching the show, but it wasn't what the deepest self wanted. There was some forgetting going on. They were in trance, basically. And this is what the Buddha described as suffering. That when we make our home in small places, when we aim our longings onto substitutes, to get somebody's recognition, or to prove ourselves right, to look a certain way, we end up in pain. So take a moment, if you will, just to think about today and what it was like, and see if you can start understanding the role intention plays. And you might close your eyes and just review kind of the flavor of the day, how it unfolded. And notice if you can sense what was mattering to you. What were you going after? What were you trying to accomplish or experience? 
What were you trying not to experience? Were you consciously intentional? Was there an intention to be present, to rest in the moment? Just without any judgment, just to notice how this quality of intent either unconsciously ruled the day or consciously, and what kind of a world it created for you today. You can open your eyes if you'd like. There's no shame in the fact that we all get waylaid. I mean, you can describe the whole spiritual path as one of forgetting and remembering and forgetting and remembering. And we do it in the course of a day and then we do it in the seasons of our lives. Um, We get fixated on something that really matters professionally to us or finding the perfect mate, losing weight getting respect where we don't have it. I love this little story. An honest seven-year-old admitted calmly to her parents that Billy Brown had kissed her after class. How did that happen, gasped her mother. It wasn't easy, admitted the young lady, but three girls helped me catch him. (laughs) Our attention naturally gravitates around meeting our basic wants and needs, our human needs food, shelter, emotional support, pleasure of all different types. And, and that's quite fine. Again, I'll, another story from this same little set. Uh, it took place in a kindergarten. On the first day of school, the kindergarten teacher said, if anyone has to go to the bathroom, hold up two fingers. And a little voice from the back of the room asked, how will that help? <laughs> So as we know, we are naturally guided. If we're on a trip somewhere and we have to go to the bathroom, we're going to be looking for rest stops. Or if we're hungry, we're going to be looking for rest stops. We, it's said in India that when a pickpocket sees a saint, he or she sees the saint's pocket. All the different levels of what we want, our attention gets somewhat narrowed. There's nothing wrong with going after things we want. The suffering is we forget what we really want. That's the deal. It's fine to pursue the right mate or looking good or the right job, but just can we stay connected to what the deepest self wants? We forget to dive. You can look at your life in another way and you might close your eyes again if you'd like. This is a little bit of a larger sweep and you can, we'll do it briefly now, but any time you want this reflection to imagine that you're at the end of your life looking back. At the end of your life looking back. And then there's these basic questions of did I live well? Did I love well? Did I show up for this life? touching the moments, 
And again, you can sense today, how did your experience today fit in with what matters if you were at the end of your life looking back? Sometimes looking in this way really helps to motivate us. There's this sense of, I really want to live true to what matters. I really want these days to, I don't want to have that excuse of compartmentalizing and going to work and completely shutting down my vulnerable or loving self because it's hard out there. I really want to keep living. And there's other times that we look at the discrepancy between what matters and our daily routine and it can be depressing. It can be discouraging, the sense of not being aligned. As many of you know, I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm not seeing people right now, but in the times that I was seeing people, the probably most deep despair that we'd encountered together was that of skimming the surface and not really living life of kind of, in some way, racing to the end point, racing after things, but really not touching another person or touching the moment, not touching our children. Again, it's forgetting why we're here, being at the castle but not really remembering what matters. This is a very well-known now poem from Kabir. He says, Friend, hope for the guest. The guest is the divine. Hope for the guest while you're alive. Jump into experience while you're alive. Think and think while you are alive. What you call salvation belongs to the time before death. If you don't break your ropes while you're alive, do you think ghosts will do it after? The idea that the soul will join with the ecstatic just because the body is rotten, that is all fantasy. What is found now is found then. If you find nothing now, you will simply end up with an apartment in the city of death. If you make love with the divine now, in the next life you will have the face of satisfied desire. So plunge into the truth. Find out who the teacher is. Kabir says this, when the guest is being searched for, It is the intensity of the longing for the guest that does all the work. Look at me and you will see a slave of that intensity. So a large part of spiritual life is seeing without judging that our lives get small because we're chasing after things that aren't what the deepest self longs for. We haven't connected with the intensity of really longing to be free and be awake and be in love. So in Buddhism and in many traditions there's an actual practice of establishing our intention, of remembering what matters. And there's an understanding. It's a wonderful thing if you look into the word desire, what it means. The actual translation, there's two, and one is away from our star. And the other is to seize to see. 
So when we're feeling desire, it's because we're in some way separated from our star. We're separated from awareness. We're separated from love. Establishing our aspiration is sinking into this longing to reconnect. And we don't have to manufacture it. When we begin class, as we do so often, and I ask you, okay, so what does your heart long for? What do you want? It might be that at first the mind's really busy and you don't connect, there's a lot of static. But if we listen, and this is the beauty of it, if we take the time to ask that question and then listen, the very nature of our mind is to long to be awake and long to be in love. We will arrive there. So our, que- our practice starts with that question. What matters? And you can just right now sense what happens when you ask that question. Okay, so what does my heart long for? And I'm going to ask the question a number of times just to keep asking yourself, so what really matters? There's an attitude that helps in practicing with aspiration and that is to sense, am I feeling sincere in this moment? Sincere is another wonderful word. It comes from the 19th century and it means without wax. You know, they used to use um, wax to cover up cracks and imperfections and plateware and so on. And so sincere is being real, being as we are. It comes from essence. It's not mechanical. So when we ask this question, we might have some mechanical responses. But our intentions, see if we can just, what really matters? I'll read you a few letters to God from children. It's one of my favorite little books. I've got almost every page marked. (laughs) Dear God, instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you got now? (laughs) That's Jane. Dear God, I went to this wedding and they kissed right in front of church. Is that okay? Neil. there's so many did you really mean to do unto others as they do unto you because if you did then I'm going to fix my brother (laughs) that's Darla dear God thank you for the baby brother but what I prayed for was a puppy Joyce (laughs) dear God Please send me a pony. I never asked for anything before. You can look it up, Bruce. (laughs) Dear God, I bet it is very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four in our family and I can never do it. (laughs) Nan. Dear God, I don't ever feel alone since I found out about you, Nora. Dear God, if you hadn't let the dinosaur go extinct, we would not have a country. You did the right thing. Jonathan. (laughs) One more. Dear God, I didn't think orange went with purple until I saw the sunset you made on Tuesday. That was cool. 
Eugene. Children help us, and the child inside helps us, because there is this place that has wonder and innocence and just plain cares. So we begin with the sense of what does it mean to be sincere right now? And I love asking myself that because I find when I'm not liking myself, when I'm kind of sour on myself, there's a feeling of insincerity. I don't feel, I don't feel like I'm in a place of tenderness or caring or realness. So we begin by sensing, can we get sincere and just ask that question, what really matters? And then as one writer put it, this prayer, this aspiration is the stillness of pure attention, being open to the wisdom of your clay. We listen. The longing's already in there, what really matters. So we listen. Another poem for you. This is by Michael Jones. There is a story living inside us that speaks of our place in the world. It is a story that invites us to love what we love and simply be ourselves. The story is not given to us. It flows naturally from within. To hear it, we have only to be silent for a moment and turn our face to the wind. So as the Buddha described it, when we understand our predicament, all our conditioning to get lost, we begin by remembering what matters. We do it consciously. Now what happens? What happens when we say to ourselves, okay, what does my heart long for? Sometimes what happens is we feel kind of armoring, our numbness. Like there's nobody home in there that cares about anything. So part of this process of practicing is this patience just to let, it's like water that's stirred up or muddy, just to let it settle so we can see clearly what's here. I'm doing a a writing project now. I'm kind of the last third maybe of writing a book and um, it's stirred up every emotion in the world, including a lot of frustration and self-doubt when I'm stuck and blocked. So I'm using a lot of this practice of what really matters to come back home again. Um, There's so much self-invested in writing, I'm finding. So what'll happen is I'll be sitting there and feel stuck and feel anxious and, you know, start looking at my chapter through my editor's eyes and seeing how flawed it is. And then, okay, what really matters? You know, look inside. And at first sometimes there's just a lot of um, busyness and static, like all the ideas of the, of the writing process are going through. So I'll ask again, sincerely, okay, what really matters? And usually then I'll get to a feeling of anxiety. So again, okay, so what really matters? And if I keep going down and down and down, what matters is I want to feel the realness of what I care about and be able to express it. And why does that matter? Just because I want to be living what I love and speaking what I love. And if I can get down there, there's a whole lot of space because that's a much more, 
what the deepest self loves. Sometimes we're numb. Sometimes we can't touch into what really matters, especially if we're really um, caught in a lot of attachment and aversion. So we need to take the time. Sometimes what happens when we ask what really matters is we'll go into a place of real vulnerability. Let's say what really matters is that we feel connected with other people and we're not feeling connected. So we'll ask ourselves, okay, what do I care about? And we'll get in touch with all the grief about how we're not living the life we want to live. I'm going to read you the poem that I probably read the most to myself these days. It's a Havis poem. It's called Absolutely Clear. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of God absolutely clear. When we allow the depth of our angst, our longing, our fear to be felt in the most profound way, what it does is it opens us to what really matters, our connection with this world, with this life, with the divine. Let it cut more deep. One writer puts it, longing is always at its most intense in the experience of vulnerability. It's the slow and difficult work of living out your vulnerability that holds you in the flow of life. That's John O'Donohue. So part of this diving into what the deepest self longs for is this willingness to feel where we're hurting, what really matters. In traditional Buddhist practice, at the beginning of every sitting, at the beginning of a day, at the beginning of a ritual, we start by pausing and establishing our aspiration, just as we do here, remembering that we care about presence. The formal language, and this is the aspiration of the bodhisattva, an awakening being, is may whatever arises serve the awakening of this heart-mind. So we come and we sit, and the, the longing is that it doesn't matter what shows up, will it help me to feel more compassion? And then there's a second part of the bodhisattva's aspiration, which is, and may this life be of benefit to all beings. If we sink deep enough, we find that our aspiration is not a personal one. It's not like we're racing to the finish line of some spiritual kind of competition, trying to make a spiritual muscle and get to home run, you know, by ourselves. It's like we all are together waking up. So our aspiration is that our lives might be a stream that is part of helping everybody wake up, 
everywhere. Setting our intention is a way of being faithful to what matters to us. We all feel this in our depths that we want to be fully alive. Every one of us wants to live fully. Every one of us wants to love well. And daily life can sometimes feel like a betrayal of that. That's why this book moved me so much, uh, the one I just read, because it reminded me of the possibility, and we don't have to be immediately facing the end of our life, of becoming so clear in what matters that our moments of every day really become aligned. They become infused with caring. They become awake. Mary Oliver writes, Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one precious and wild life? So I'll end with a short Jataka tale, and this is a story of the Buddha in a past lifetime. The Buddha was in the body of a good merchant in this story, and he was living in a village in North India, and um, working in the shop, and he saw, looking out the window, a luminous being, a bodhisattva, who he sensed as divine walking across the town square. And this being radiated a compassion that really let the merchant know that this was a being that was going to help awaken him on his path. So he wanted to serve him and bring him nourishment, so he prepared a tray to offer. And he started walking and felt the joy of following his heart, of moving towards truth. And then right in the middle of the town square, all of a sudden the skies got dark and there were thunderbolts and lightning in the sky and the ground cracked and there was screams and screeches and this was a display of demons that was Mara, him and herself. Mara is the god of greed, hatred and delusion. The voices of Mara were screaming at this merchant, go back, turn around, who do you think you are anyway? It's dangerous. You know, all the, any, vo- any voice you've ever heard that's told you to uh, shut it down, close down, don't pursue your heart. Those are the voices that were going on. So he was about to turn around and then he paused. And in that pause he remembered the feeling of his heart's aspiration, that sense of of joy, of knowing that all that really mattered was awakening. And of course the Bodhisattva was just a symbol or an emanation that he knew could help him in that. So what he did, he just carefully took a few more steps towards that radiant being. And the display of demons vanished. And then he was just standing there before this luminous figure who said to him, Well done, Bodhisattva. Well done. Walk on. Walk on through all the fears, through all the difficulties, and you will know a freedom and a peace beyond all imagining. Just follow the call of your heart.
So this is the beginning and middle and end of a wise and compassionate practice. We anchor our practice when we begin it by saying, ah, what really matters? And in the Buddhist tradition we end, as the Bodhisattva's aspiration describes, by offering blessings to all beings. May this life be of benefit. And the message of the Buddha is don't wait. You know, don't wait. Live as if you're at the end of your life looking back and asking those questions. Did I live well? Did I love well? Did I live a path with heart? And when we realize we don't have to wait, our spiritual life becomes very deep and very vital. So that's enough words for now. Let's just take a moment, if you will, just to come into presence together. And in the spirit of this evening, take some moments to reflect on your aspiration again and again, just to ask that question, what matters? What do I care about in this life? And then just listen with a gentle quality of attention, allowing yourself to inhabit whatever longing or prayer is there in a wholehearted way. feeling and listening to the aspiration of the heart will again chant the sound current of OM, chant five times, and please let your heart pour out into the sound, let your heart receive the sound, and feel free to harmonize and weave your voice with others. Please inhale deeply.
beings be filled with loving kindness. May all beings touch great and natural peace. May all beings awaken and be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.